0: Alan Kring Productions, in association with Emergent Light Studio, presents the Illinois State Collegiate Compendium Academic Lectures in Business and Economics. This is Business Finance FIL 240 for Autumn Semester 2023. Today, Project Analysis and um, just as a few preliminary words we have a surprise quiz on wednesday and i'm going to take you through just to make absolutely sure that you know how to use the templates to be able to accomplish it like a boss and from there we'll go on to the project analysis uh, for today <clears throat> and that'll spill of course into wednesday i'll do more of the setup today and then the mathy thing on Wednesday. But first, a look at the numbers. And just as a point of departure, take note that the advertisements at Yahoo Finance are generally finance oriented. And here we have a place where you can actually do your trades in stocks. It says stocks, options, and futures. And the name of this Brokerage house is tasty trade. Now, uh, I'll just leave it at that and let you decide if that's a really good place for you to do your stock trading. Uh, perhaps you get a meal with every uh, 100 shares you buy, something like that. But anyway, here we go. The S and P uh, the there, this was a kind of a rocking session because first the, the market was up a little bit and then it dropped just around the end of the midday and then it managed to rally and there was a, some more of a rally there at the end. About an hour and a half ago, the, the, these numbers were barely in the positive, just a, a, hundreds, a couple hundredths of a percent. But it did manage to find its um, wind in its sails. The Dow ended up about uh, one-tenth of a percent up, whoop de doo And the S&P 500, not quite two-tenths of a percent. And the uh, NASDAQ up three-tenths of a percent. So uh, uh, I would qualify uh, this is a, was a bull day by saying it was about the weakest bull you could get. Now, as, and notice here, interestingly enough, something happened at the end that got the markets a little bit w- awakened. Uh, an hour and a half before the end of trading today, the S&P 500 was not even half, the volume was not even half of what, it, what has been on a typical day. But there was a surge there at the end, and it finished with about 2.2 billion shares against the average for the year over the past year of 3.7. So it's not spectacular at all. There's still a lot of skittishness among investors right now. They're keeping a lot of money in cash. Oil has is well below that range of 82 to 88, and it dropped... It tried to rally today, and it finished down uh, barely up. Interestingly enough, the price of gasoline has gone up a little bit at the retail level uh, today, and that probably is more that there is uh, that oil is being used to produce distillates because the price of diesel has been up quite uh, has been rather high lately. So. They may be allocating more of the production to distillates for, for, for now. But if the prices stay down here, eventually you'll see gasoline prices being pretty darn uh, cheap, comparatively speaking. The gold bugs have wh- backed off a lot, which kind of is an indication that they certainly don't see any economic apocalypse on the horizon. And the euro, uh, well, let me talk here. The 10-year bond, the yield surged uh, up, whoa, almost uh, about 10 basis points, which means the price fell. Price felling, investors were getting out of uh, bonds. Looks like a little of their money went into equities, but most of it's probably just going into cash as the investors want to survey the landscape. Yields going up will slow down in an economy, but this is, a, this is just a one-day thing, so we can hope that that will wane as the week goes along. The euro and the, do- and the pound were appreciating into the midday, and then they just started to go down. Part of it's because our yields on interest rate, uh, interest rate yields are going up, stronger dollar, weaker euro, weaker uh, pound, And, uh, well, that's interesting. The Japanese yen, we... uh, No, it's weaker, too. Yeah, I, I keep forgetting the yen is backwards, depreciating. Okay, so now over here. This is a couple of times recently I've seen this with the Nikkei. It popped on the opening bell, and then it just floated there for the rest of the day. So there was news building before the bell, good news building before the bell and the Nikkei 225 jumps. And then there's no more into good news, so it just floats right there where it was at the beginning, up two and, two, th- two and a third percent for the day, which is a good day, but, I mean, all the good happened on the very opening bell. London is doing weird things. It just keeps uh, having these volatile sessions. It was up then down, and then it surged, and then went down, up, down. It, it, there's a lot of volatility over there on in Great Britain and the London exchanges kind of having a hard time deciding whether it's a bull or a bear every day recently. Look at a few stocks just to have a look around to refresh your memory of how to do things and how to look at them. And I haven't looked at bank stocks recently, so let's look at Citigroup. One of the 10 too big to fail. Well, that's interesting because you've got a beta that is, that's a high-risk beta, 1.55. But it's undervalued. That P-E ratio indicates an undervalued uh, stock. And they're obviously quite profitable, $6.30 per share. And a nice dividend, almost five percent yield dividend yield. So there you are. Kind of a hard call on that one. But just to remind you of you know calcul- doing that calculation for capital gains and dividend yield and all that, we would take if you bought it today in a year, Yahoo is predicting 49 48 per share divided by. The current price, which you would buy it at a year before you sold it, 42.04 minus 1 equals, and then I multiply that by 100 to get a percent. And then I add in the dividend yield, 4.92%. Oh, that's decent. I mean, that's a high beta. Obviously, you you expect a high... return on it twenty two point six two percent that's a that's a healthy yield if it lives up to this projection uh, I mean it's one of those stocks if you're a risk taker Citigroup would be something you would look at uh, I don't know how excited I would be about it though but there you go now I'm trying to think what oh Let's have a look at something completely different. I don't pay too much attention to the monsters of the earth, but let's look at Microsoft, MSFT. It's a rich person's stock, three fifty six fifty three per share, up more than a percent today. So but it's lost it's lost a lot of that ground. Or at least it's lost some of that ground in the um, aftermarket trading. But anyway, as you can see, it's relatively safe stock at beta 0.88, somewhat overvalued. It got a, and it's got a, kind of a crappy dividend, 0.85%. But it's a pro, obviously it's a profitable company. So let's look at what we would get a whole one year holding uh, period return total return on this one. We'd have 370 22 in a year divided by the current price you'd buy it at it's 356, 53 minus 1 and then you times that by 100 and then you add the dividend yield eight point eight five percent. So you get a total holding period return of a lousy four point six nine percent. I mean it's below one, so you don't expect a magnificent return, but that kind of that's kind of a lousy return for Microsoft. Didn't see that coming. But yeah. So there you go. Just a quick look around see what kinds of great investments there are out there and not so great investments. But right now we're kind of looking at a period where the markets are trying to decide whether they should keep being bullish or if they want to back down from that. Who knows? I want to show you something here. Let me get this off. Uh, this is for quiz type stuff and uh, final, and I talked about this last time, but when you look at the weighted average cost of capital, weighted average cost of capital versus the percent of debt in the capital structure, and of course one minus that would be the percent of equity in the capital structure. Okay, so, the WAC equation is the weight of debt times the after-tax cost of debt plus the weight of equity times the cost of equity. Nothing spectacular about that. Okay, so, we've got two scenarios. No debt. Suppose a company does not use any long-term debt. Then that would mean that the weight of debt in the portfolio is zero. Times the after-tax cost of debt. Plus the weight of equity, which would be 100%, times the cost of equity. Which of course means that your weighted average cost of capital would be nothing but the cost of equity. So in other words, when the weight of debt, when the percent of debt is zero, the weighted average cost of capital is just the cost of equity. Now suppose you had a company that was all debt. Suppose you had one that was all debt. And in that case, the weight of debt would be 100% times the after-tax cost of debt. plus the weight of equity, there would be no equity, times the cost of equity, which would then be equal to just the after-tax cost of debt. So at 100% debt, you would have just the after-tax cost of debt. And so, that would be the weighted average cost of capital curve. It is isn't a straight line because As you use more and more debt, the cost of debt is cheap, so your weighted average cost of capital goes down. But there's a point where a company borrows so much that it begins to get a high default premium in in its debt cost, and so eventually it starts to turn around. The bottoming out point is called the optimal capital structure. It's the combination of debt and equity that minimizes the weighted average cost of capital. It would do you a world of favor if you knew those three points, where it anchors to the horizontal axis, where it ends, and where what we call the bottoming out point. It would be worth your while to to know those three values. It would, and as I had already whined to you, the uh, knowing how to use the Excel template that I provided for you is going to be worth your while to know. Your job is to read the narrative of the problem and fill in the numbers where they belong in the sheets. So for example, if I had a something where let's say that you had preferred stock that was going off at oh uh, let's say a 4.8% dividend, par value $120 a share and the current price of it is oh let's say 90 one dollars and seventy cents now interestingly enough your book the homework problems always gave you the next period dividend instead of the current dividend that you would have to grow one period but we'll just do it as I've been doing before they just paid a dividend of, let's say, $2.50 per share. And it's expected to grow at, let's say, 6% per year. And the current price of the stock is, let's say, 29 dollars and 65 cents. Now, the bond narrative I'll give you a price on the hundred for the bond. Let's say that the price of the bond right now is floating at 105.50. And this one, let's make it due in 2029. And it pays a coupon of 5.75%. value of the bonds outstanding of the company is 15 million let's say the number of preferred shares is 240,000 and the number of common shares say it has 30 million common shares what you will want to do it just gets the numbers out of the narrative, these boxes, as I've put it here, and put them where they belong in the template. The preferred dividend is 4.8 percent. The price, the par value of the stock, is 120 dollars. The price of the stock right of the preferred stock is ninety one seventy. The number of preferred shares, which you find over here, this is kind of a hodgepodge, twenty four two hundred forty thousand. And the common dividend they just paid, is $2.50. The growth rate of the common stock is six percent, and the current price is $29.65. I really should have made that two decimal places. Now the bond. The bond matures in six years so we put in six for the term. The coupon is 5.75 percent. The price on the 100 is 105.50. and That's all you need to do, you got your yield. Now, the par value of the bonds is fifteen million. The price of the bonds will calculate itself par value times the price on the hundred number of preferred shares is two hundred forty thousand number of common shares 30 million and you don't need to worry about new common new issue and there's your weighted average cost of capital All you have to do is put the numbers in the right places and the weighted average cost of capital will calculate out. As a side note, the capital structure of this company right now is 1.7% debt and 98.3% equity. You see that? The equity would be the preferred plus the common and that comes up to about 2.4 plus, yeah. So the capital structure, I don't, you don't need to worry too much about this, but that divided by well, yeah, divided by a hundred one, oh, well, divided by uh, some. And the weight of equity margin center would be sum of those two, the equities be the sum of the equities divided by close parenthesis divided by the sum of all of them equals Percentages. Sum of the equities divided by the sum of all of them. Oh, those are supposed to be percents. I don't get that at all. Why is that doing that? Let's try it again. Equals the sum of those two divided by the sum of all three of them. There we go. So it's about 98% equity and 2% debt. That's called the capital structure. The capital structure is a combination of debt and equity that makes up the total assets. And again, you don't have to worry about doing any of these calculations. This calculation, not even this one actually, should have shaded that in. These will calculate themselves. All you have to do is get all of the numbers into their boxes, and then it does it itself so I am going to give you 20 minutes for this quiz just to make sure that you have enough time to sort out the numbers and put them in the right places that's the main thing yeah that, quiz, it... that thing that I did up here up at the top, yeah. so right there that the second one, one. Well, all I did in this one was okay. I said Okay, the debt to the total assets would be that number divided by that. Matter of fact, I can even make it easier. I can say, okay, why won't that delete? I'll just say, what in the world? Oh, I unplugged my. Why is this sucking? Uh. There, sorry about that. Let's try that again. Nope. Oh. Did I break something? what I just do? <clears throat> I don't... My God, I've broken the computer in here. Hang on. There. See if it's... Try that again, sorry about that. Let's try that, okay, one more time. I take, actually I'll do it easier this time, equals that divided by the total, try that again, equals that, no, I'm sorry, equals that divided by the total And then this one is equal to the sum of the two equity parts, the um, preferred stock plus the dividend stock, preferred stock plus the common stock, divided by the total. That's it. Well, that was awkward. I almost broke their computer. I kicked it out of its USB port, the keyboard. Anyway. uh, So like I said, if you just put the numbers in, you'll get the answer that you want out. And think about it this way. If you get a whack, the whack should be in a range between maybe it shouldn't be much anything lower than about six to eight percent it shouldn't be anything higher than 18 to twenty percent it should be in a so if you get something in that range at least you know that you're you've got a chance of being right okay now just feel free to try some numbers of your own Just play with the worksheet obviously don't save what you've done but just work with it just make sure that you know how to put the numbers in the right places and you shouldn't have a problem with the uh, problem well I guess it's a problem but you should not have much of a problem with the problems on the exam on the quiz that do this it'll look like you're a hero because it's the narrative Describes all these different parts of the company, the stock, the prices, and the bonds, and their, uh, that, that, uh, their coupons, and all that kind of time to maturity. So it should work out that you get a right answer for a problem that looks absolutely beastly. Okay, enough of that. This is project analysis. What we are looking for are projections of free cash flow. But we are going to do it on the level of individual projects. Now, there are two kinds of individual projects. There are expansion projects, and this is some stuff that I've talked about before, which is the way I do things. I talk about it, and then I formally introduce it. And here's the formal introduction. There are expansion projects, and then there are replacement projects. An expansion project, a good example would be, we're gonna make a new product. We've got a product line, we're gonna put another product in it. Or we're gonna go to a whole new product line, something like that. Or we're going to build a new factory or a new office building or uh, something along that line. You are expanding the company in one way or another. A replacement project is where you are going to take something that you already have and replace it with something else. Now, with an expansion project or with a replacement project, one important Feature of your analysis is going to be what I call the sandbox what we call sandbox that project exists on its own separate from anything else and all we are looking at is incremental additional cash flows you don't combine them with the company's overall revenues and costs we look at the project as it stands on its own now the only times when you might spill out of the sandbox is if you've got a product if you have a product that's going to cannibalize another product. Companies try their best not to have that happen unless, I'm going to give you a sort of a broad example of times when you might actually have deliberately some cannibalization. From your marketing, and you may have seen this somewhere besides marketing. But when you look at products, over time you're going to have an introductory phase where you don't get hardly any sales. But then you're going to have a growth phase and then the maturity phase and the decline phase. This is the introductory phase you're bringing the product to the shelves and you're trying to get people to buy it notice it first You gotta get people to notice it this will be this when the people begin to start buying it more more buyers growing market share whatever you want to call it and then you've got this maturity phase Sometimes I use an old term, which I don't know is even around now, the cash cow. It's just there, you're not growing it, you're not taking market share, it just exists. It's just there, you've got a loyal following for it. And of course, this is when the barbarians are coming to the gates with their new and improved knockoffs of your product. And eventually, you start sliding into this decline phase. It's not worth pushing marketing campaigns on it. You're just letting it kind of fizzle out. There's an interesting thing about cannibalization, though. Sometimes, what you'll do is you'll bring a new product market during the decline phase of a product that is like it, simply because you can then bring a little more slowly your customers from the old one to the new one. And of course, what that will do is that will steepen this decline phase. But yeah, there's where cannibalization can actually happen and it's not a bad thing. You're just weaning people off the older product and bringing them to the newer product. So cannibalization isn't a totally negative term. Now the other thing that you can sometimes do is have a synergy where a new product is actually working to increase revenues of an older product. Increase customer um, embrace. Now you see this sometimes in software, where a company will have a product. It's good, but it's for a limited audience. But over time, what you'll do is add to that product (coughs) add-ins, filters, whatever you want to call them, that will make more people embrace your product. Because it has now does things that it didn't used to do, just slap on a few things onto it and to some extent, Adobe has uh, is in that kind of a category. Even Microsoft, they have add-ins that merely enhance the value of the core product and make it even more embraceable, like for example, uh, Adobe, uh, Microsoft for Excel, they will soon be coming out, if they haven't already, I don't know if it's already there, Uh, they have integrated Python into Excel. So your Python users, your programmers who are, well I do algos, well now you can just use Excel, which you should use anyway, but now you can have Python right in your Excel. And of course, AI is this AI, quote unquote, which is an AI. It's a fast machine learning so far, we hope. But, I mean, enhancing, well, buy this add in. Here's an add in. We're going to spend money to build it. And then what you'll do is you will buy the core product because you have this add in. Uh, the the um, social media platform, formerly known as Twitter, uh, is uh, in the process of that too. First, they're going to charge almost everyone to use Twitter, okay? But then they're going to throw in with it their work they're doing on a a proprietary AI. They call it XAI, I think. So that that will add value to the core product Twitter, which you will have to pay for. Right now, if you want any possibility of notice, you have to pay a fee of, what is it, $8.99 a month. And soon, anyone who uses Twitter, even if you don't pay the premium fee, you'll have to pay a dollar to be on Twitter. So in order to enhance the purchase of Twitter, they'll throw in a new goodie, which I don't know what it's supposed to do, but you know it's AI, so some people may pay the dollar just so they have access to the AI. On Twitter. Anyway. Pitfalls in the analysis. The biggest one of all is sunk costs. What you've already paid for has nothing to do with the analysis you're doing right now. Well, we put a lot of money into the research on this. Now we're ready to look at whether we should do it or not. We got all the data. Well, that'll be part of the initial investment. We'll add that uh, $750,000 we did for the research. No, you won't. You already paid it. It's gone. It's with Jesus now. You don't need to put it in there. You should not put it in there. You're never going to get that $750,000 back. You've already done it. So don't worry about it. You buy a new car. Well, man, uh, I better keep this car up because, I, I mean, I, gotta, I, I spent all this money. On. That's not why you should keep the car, uh, putting money into the car. All that you're putting money into the car is to hold its current value, not to recover your initial pr- uh, price you paid. That's the most difficult thing I had as a consultant was convincing these companies, the executives, you already spent this money. It's gone. It has nothing whatsoever to do with your decisions about whether to proceed from here with it. And that's very difficult. And there are even some larger corporations that seem to keep thinking, well, we've already spent this money, so we better keep going. It has nothing whatsoever to do with the issue. So, okay, so there's one. The next one is opportunity cost. What else could you have done? The example that I keep going back to which I probably used right here. the uh, A city decides to throw the money, taxpayer money into building uh, some kind of a an entertainment venue, an arena, or a stadium. And, and I saw this. I've seen this several times, and one, I was in the direct line of fire of it because I asked the wrong question. Where are the costs of the land that you're going to put this arena on? Well, we already have the land, so that's a cost we can avoid. <laughs> no, it's not. You could have sold the land. The fact that you're going to build an arena on it means that you gave up the best alternative, which would have been to sell it. That piece of land would have gone for about $3 million. So that's $3 million addition that you will add to the initial investment of building the daggone thing. That's a common mistake and it falls into the category of a somewhat broader idea of indirect costs. The hidden costs. The costs you don't see that are still there but you ignore them and that can be a killer on a project. You think you think you're saving money but you're not because you are using resources at the same time. we do, oh, Well, we've got, already got our director chosen. We're gonna just shift this guy over here. He doesn't have enough to do in his current job. Well, what's his salary? It's $90,000 a year. Well, that's $90,000 per year added to the wages and salaries. Well, no, because we already have him on board. No, you are moving him. You are using him for this project, so that's $90,000 each year added to the costs. It's hard uh, for people outside of our world to understand those kinds of concepts. The do-it-yourselfer who does something, well, I would have paid $500 for this. Uh, It took me about 100 hours to do it. Well, how much do you make an hour at your job? About $30 an hour. 30 times 100 is $3,000. And you think you saved money? No, you blew a lot of money. You creamed yourself on money. But people don't think about it that way. Okay, that's fine. But keep in mind, these are all part of what you will probably have to do at some point. You'll have to be one of those people who is looking through these. No matter whether you're in finance or marketing or whatever, or production, uh, you have to think about these things and find out what the full cost is. If you don't, no one will notice until the project dies from losses, as happens with these arenas. City after city gets suckered in because they don't look at full cost the a direct plus the indirect costs. And then, just like somewhere around this area, you have, oh, we lost another $2 million this year. We're, we're really, uh, yeah, and that's $2 million that you owe back to the taxpayers because you screwed up on the look, on the forward look on the project. A little bit, just for your purposes. Okay, now... got a project year, free cash flow, got your zero year, one year, two years, three years, four years, let's do five years, and I'm not going to write so much numbers here, but I'm just going to write the basic idea here. Okay, free cash flow. From earlier in the semester, your revenues minus your operating costs, minus your depreciation and amortization, times one minus your tax rate, which is right now 0.21, thanks to the Tax Act of of 2017. Okay, that animal right there is what we call NOPAT, net operating profit after taxes, NOPAT. And then, so free cash flow is going to be NOPAT. Now you add back in the depreciation and amortization, because it never really happened all you have it there for is because it's a tax shield and then you take away your capital expenditures what you actually paid and you take away your change in net operating working capital so Now, net operating working capital is just your current operating assets minus your current operating liabilities. And for the purposes of a course like this, we don't distinguish between what is operating current and what is non-operating current. They're pretty much about the same for most cases anyway. And the change in net operating working capital is net operating working capital in the current period minus the net operating working capital in the previous period. Stop for a minute and let you breathe here while I talk a little bit. Current assets and current liabilities. At the beginning of a project, well, let's say it's a product. Before that product hits the shelves, you've got to build the inventory for it. So that's a change. Say you had, your, your, your company has inventory of $10 million. Well, you're figuring that your first year of sales are going to be about would justify about $2 million in additional inventory. So your current assets go up against your current liabilities. That is a drain on your cash flow. Another thing that's going to happen on the current assets side is your receivables. You want to get people to buy uh, get the product bought you might, you will have your receivables will go up. So in other words, your revenues are going to overstate what happens because you'll have some of that will show up just as receivables, not cash. So that would be a drain. So in other words, current assets going up against current liabilities will be a drain on free cash flow. The change in net operating working capital increasing is a drain on free cash flow. Similarly, though, well, you got suppliers get, uh, sending you stuff, so you're going to have your payables go up, your accounts payable go up. That means that your expense you report in accounting overstates what really happened in cash flow. So your current liabilities going up would be an addition to free cash flow. You did that on the first test. I gave you one of those, and I'll probably try it again on the, on the final. But anyway, so you have this kind of complex thing going on. You'll have your initial investment at the beginning. The capital, in other words, capital expenditures is going to be the big 800-pound gorilla. You won't have any real revenues or operating costs so much. You won't have any depreciation or amortization yet. So this is going to be dominated by the capital expenditures and by the net operating working capital increasing. Now at the end of the project, suppose that you've got a product and you're going to run it for, let's say, five years. In the last year, your inventories, you're going to kill them off. So that decline in inventories is going to be a source of free cash flow. But anyway, you'll have your initial investment, which will include, will be dominated by capital expenditures and change in not debt, operating working capital. Those will be the big ones. And then you'll be cruising along, free cash flow. One, free cash flow. Two, as these kick in and you don't do much capital expenditure, and hopefully that stabilizes. Although if the product is in its growth phase, you'll probably add more inventory than you pull out year to year as you need more inventory to satisfy increasing demand. But one way or the other, free cash flow three, free cash flow four, and then, here at the end, some odd things can happen. One thing is that revenues will be declining and your variable costs will be declining. Depreciation and amortization I'll talk about in a minute. But, There will be these other animals showing up. The capital expenditures may switch to positive because salvage value. The ending free cash flow in period five, which will include salvage value. It will also have, like I said, the normal components, although these will be declining, maybe not depreciation and amortization, but certainly revenues and operating costs are going to be slowing down as you kill the project off. And you'll, have, you'll be getting some money, free cash flow increase as you let the inventory just sell off and you don't replace it. Now, the salvage value. net salvage value will be the gross salvage, how much you sell it for, minus minus the tax on the salvage value. That's where it gets a little fun, quote unquote, fun. Because the tax will be the gross salvage value minus the book value of the asset times the tax rate. You will be taxed on the sale price minus the book value. So in other words, suppose that you sell the goods for, let's say, $800,000. Now the book value, you haven't depreciated it all away, so the book value is still standing at $200,000. So net salvage value is going to be $600,000. The tax on that at 21% makes your net salvage value after tax, after tax, only I'm not even going to try to do that in my head. I'm bring up a calculator here and take 600,000 times 0.21 126,000 So your net salvage value is $474,000. That's how much you get to keep after you pay taxes on the gross salvage value minus the book. A couple of pointers here. And I'll go through this again. So don't sweat that part. But a couple of pointers here about this: notice that the longer you keep the asset, the more of the depreciation you—the you, closer you're getting to a book value of zero—because you've got have more years that you're depreciating it. So that means that you will be exposed to more tax the longer you keep it. So your net will be lower. Another interesting part of this, just a little not too long history. Back when I was, even when I was uh, founding my own company, this last one which is still alive for some reason, uh, the num- there there were in that time some assets which you could depreciate the whole amount in one year. I think it was called Schedule 179. It was a very short list, though, of uh, types of assets that you could, okay, just knock it off as an expense. First year, the whole thing. Uh, And there was a list, it was a schedule. This is something on the list, this is of assets that you could wipe out the whole salvage value. Now, interestingly enough, over time, that list has increased quite a bit. The, the assets that can be uh, expensed all at once at, uh, in the year of purchase. And uh, so that means that there are a lot of assets where the book value is zero after only a few years. And so that essentially increases the tax exposure of the salvage value sale. Well, we've got this equipment, we've, we're closing down the project, we're in year five, and we're gonna close down the project. Okay, we're gonna sell the stuff for uh, $600,000. Well, we, if you know, under the old rules, well, we get to subtract 126,000 of that and so we pay tax only on 474,000. But these days, you might find out that after five years, well, we we expense the whole asset at, on the first year. So there's a book value of zero. So you pay tax on the entire amount that you sell the stuff for at the end of the project. So that accelerate that super accelerated. Uh, uh, depreciation has has the effect of making more, uh, of causing you to pay more tax on the stuff at the end of the project you sell. It's just the way it is. Okay. So, taken all together, we construct the Free cash flow stream. Following all this stuff that we're going to do, the notepad, minus capital expenditures, minus change in net operating working capital year to year. And then we come up with the, uh, these numbers here. And then we just take the net present value. That's the end of the problem. We just take the NPV of the project or the internal rate of return, uh, if, if you will, and there's the end of the project right there there's the end of our analysis it in talking about it it's kind of complicated but like as an Excel routine or something like that it's not all that bad where your danger comes in of course is projecting the revenues operating costs well how do we project the operating costs we do it the old-fashioned way we take a percentage we consider operating costs to be a variable cost, so they're a percentage of the revenue. So once you project the revenues, you say, well, operating costs will be 40% of revenues. And, so, and we know how to write the depreciation. We just use a depreciation schedule in Excel, so that's not hard. We know our tax rate. That's not hard. We know what our capital expenditures are going to be because we've got the bids and we've got the winning bid and all that projecting the net operating working capital, we actually do that by a percent of uh, revenues. Think about it this way. Okay, your account's receivable. We would hope that your account's receivable will be a stable percentage of your revenues. And inventory. Well, inventory... That should be a fairly stable percentage of your sales too you have that that's how you get gross margin. We calculated the gross margin for a product similar to that as twenty percent uh as uh as sixty sixty five percent okay that would mean the cost of goods sold was thirty five percent of revenues Aha! Uh-huh. so it looks kind of complicated procedurally but we usually use percentages and we project the the numbers based on those percentages and then the only challenge is projecting the revenues and that's where the pitfalls come in. You can be overly optimistic. Well we're going to sell this product like hotcakes right out of the box. Oh You didn't, did you? No, we had uh, about a year or two there where people didn't know what the hell we were selling. Uh, That's a problem, too. And also, another problem is when to kill it. How long you want to keep it. You're going to go in, well, I erased it, but you're going to go into that maturity phase. Well, when is the maturity phase going to hit? Three years? Five years? Ten years? How long is it going to take our competition to figure out that we've got a winner, and they're going to come in, and they're going to bleed market share off us like a boss. Those are the kinds of challenges. So really, the, the hard part, in a way, is projecting the revenues, being realistic about how quickly the market is going to embrace the product, how quickly the com- competition is going to come in and get our, and take our game away from us, and all of that. The rest of it's kind of like just put the numbers together, and then when it's all over, you just look back and say, how could we do better the next time we project the cash? Free cash flows for a project. That's all I have for you today. I thank you.